When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. The Chinese economy is a lie. Hello, my friends, Takuya here, and welcome back to the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. I know that for a lot of you that are probably listening to this here right now for that opening statement, that this is something that may come as a little bit of a shock. But the statement that we're talking about here is something that is absolutely true. Prior to the initiation of economic reforms and trade liberalization nearly 40 years ago, China at the time had maintained policies that kept the economy very poor, stagnant, and centrally controlled. It was something that was vastly inefficient and relatively isolated from the global economy. To be fair, this is something that has a tendency to happen in communist agrarian societies, but I digress. But since opening up to foreign trade and investment, as well as implementing free market reforms in 1979, China has been among the world's fastest growing economies, with real annual gross domestic product, GDP growth, averaging around 9.5% all the way through 2018, a pace that has been described by the World Bank as, quote, the fastest sustained expansion by a major economy in history. Such growth has enabled China, on average, to double its GDP every eight years years and has helped raise an estimated 800 million people out of poverty. China has become the world's largest economy, at least in terms of purchasing power parity basis, as well as the world's largest manufacturer, merchandise trader, and holder of foreign exchange reserves. This in turn has made China a major commercial partner of the United States, as China is the largest U.S. merchandise trading partner, the biggest source of imports, and the third largest U.S. export market. China is also the largest foreign holder of U.S. Treasury securities, which is something that helps fund the federal debt and keep U.S. interest rates relatively low. I say low, but then considering how everything has been going with interest rates over the past year, it, it, it might be a little bit beside the point, but historically speaking, that has been the norm. But the thing is, as China's economy has matured, its real GDP growth has slowed significantly, from 14.2% in the year 2007 down to 6.6% in 2018. Now, the Chinese government has embraced slower economic growth, referring to it as the, quote, new normal, and acknowledging the need for China to embrace a new growth model that relies less on fixed investment and exports, and a bit more on private consumption, along with services and innovation to drive economic growth. These kinds of reforms are things that are necessary in order for China to be able to avoid hitting the middle income trap, something where countries achieve a certain economic level, but then begin to experience sharply diminishing economic growth rates because they are unable to adopt new sources of economic growth, such as with innovation. And I mean, hey, yeah, that's all well and good, and the growth rate is indeed phenomenal, but there is a little bit of a problem with this. A key problem. Beijing is cooking its books. China's growth likely hasn't been as huge as Beijing has been claiming for many years. And a number of people are probably going to look at me and they're going to wonder, Stack, okay, well, what exactly is going on? And how do we know this in the first place? As an example of this cooking of the books, there are four economists by the name of Wei Chen, Zhilu Chen, and Michael Song of the Chinese University of Hong Kong, along with Cheng Tai Se of the University of Chicago, who over the years took a fine-tooth comb to Chinese economic data and in 2019 released a study that would tease out China's true rate of economic growth. And what may come as a surprise to many is that since the year 2008, China has on average been exaggerating its growth rates by a rate of 1.7 percentage points 
which many people are probably going to look at that and think, okay, well, that doesn't sound so bad. I mean, we're talking about one or two percentage points, right? Is that really all that big of a deal? One has to remember that we're not talking about GDP in terms of thousands, millions, or billions. We are talking about a total number that is in the trillions of dollars. And one to two percentage points may not sound like necessarily all that big of a deal, but cumulatively, when you look at this over the course of over a decade, shave off just a couple percentage points every single year, and we're talking about over the course of a 12-year period, an approximate 20% difference in GDP. So imagine, if you will, knocking several trillion dollars off of that number, and you understand that at that point as to why this is a very, very big deal indeed. So, okay, well then, how does one even begin to test something like this here in the first place? Well, the four economists' forensic examination that they did of China's GDP figures is something that would rely on harder-to-fake data. Things like tax receipts, nighttime light intensity observed from satellites, electricity generation, railway cargo, merchandise exports. These were all the things that were used to estimate China's true growth rate since the 2008 global financial crisis. The estimates are both much more volatile and nearly always lower than the financial figure that are reported by China's National Bureau of Statistics. Look at it this way. China's 2018 GDP on China's official statistical website shows that 93 trillion yuan translates to around 13.4 trillion in U.S. dollars. That compares to the 20.5 trillion for the United States, valuing China's economy at around 65% of the size of America's. Of course, China has more than four times the population of the United States, so in per capita terms, China is still way far behind the United States at $9,800 compared to nearly 63000 for the United States. And the thing about this is that no one really knew exactly what to believe about the Chinese numbers for many years. I mean, there was always the assumption that some of them may have been fake, but not necessarily any definitive proof. But now we kind of know that they are fake. The four economists' new figures that were published in one of the Brookings Institution's working papers suggest that both the GDP and the GDP growth in China are actually far below what the headlines have been saying, assuming that China was accurately reporting its GDP figures back in 2008. And again, that is a big if of if they were doing so in the first place. Place, the new estimate for 2018 would be $11.1 trillion, or only around 54% the size of the American economy. That implies a per capita figure of only around $8,000, well below Mexico figures of $9,600, and that would only be around one-eighth of the U.S. level. And remember, what we are doing in the first place in order to arrive at that conclusion is that the 2008 numbers are accurate, that those are not tampered with at all, which is also probably not true. The guy that you can see behind me right here is Li Keqiang, who was a regional party boss and later became the premier of China, who back in 2007 would famously remark that the figures of Chinese economic data were man-made. Like, it wasn't necessarily something that was backed by any hard statistics. It was something that uh, the people of China put forth. And so the lower the base number that we would have in 2008, though we have no way to necessarily discern this, that means the lower the number that we would possibly have today. Think about it like this way. Taking China's reported 2018 growth rate of 6.5% down by 1.7 points would give a growth figure of 4.8%, well below that of regional competitors like Vietnam and India, both of which were at 7.3%. It would also mean that even at that growth rate, assuming that it stayed standard and the same for years afterwards, China would not catch up to the United States anytime soon. If we extrapolated China at 4.8% and the United States at its current historical average of 2.1%, that means that China's economy would not surpass America's until 2036. In per capita terms, it wouldn't happen until 2076. And that is a lot of extrapolation to consider. But okay, the question from all of this then becomes, how exactly did we get here? How and why did China do this? 
The answer is debt and power. Those of you who have watched my videos here before know exactly what is about to happen. It's time to get into some historical context. And yes, we are going to be going back quite a bit, but one has to understand that the further back you go when talking about Chinese history, the more that you can understand why things are iffy in today's day and age. And so to that end, we are going to be first going back all the way to the 19th century, where I'm sure that many people are already aware, the 19th century wasn't exactly something that was good to China, and moving on into the early 20th century, doubly so. Like, easily one of the biggest impacts upon China during this time, the thing that would severely weaken its own control over its country and its economy, was the Opium Wars. Those are probably conflicts that outright deserve their own video, and I can do that at a later time if you all want, but to sum it up, the Opium Wars were the wars that occurred between Britain and China over whether or not Britain was going to be able to sell opium within China. Something that China really didn't want, because it was sick and tired of its people getting addicted. The British, of course, during this time period, really wanted to continue to sell opium because it was the only thing that they were actually able to sell to China, which pretty much refused all things else and would only trade in silver for their goods. And the British, my friends, they really wanted their tea. The end result of these two conflicts was an overwhelming British military victory, after which we would see the Treaty of Nanking and the Treaty of Tansen, which would impose unequal trade relations between Britain and China, and also simultaneously force China to have to pay an indemnity to Britain, as well as ceding Hong Kong to them. Again, that is probably a topic that that deserves its own video, so if you all want a video on that, definitely let me know down in the comment section below. But either way, the debt that China would accrue from this conflict was massive, and it was something that would only be horrible for the state. The consequences of this debt is that there was very little money to actually be used in order to run the state itself. A significant portion of the state revenue had to actually be dedicated towards the indemnities in order to pay foreign powers in the first place, and the unequal treaties would undermine Qing authority, which would only weaken its power over the population, and from that, eventually lead to the fall of the empire itself. Unmanageable debt is never exactly a good thing. Fast forward a little bit of time, and this is exactly what would happen. The Qing Dynasty would end up falling, and this in turn would see the rise of the Republic of China. 1912 was something that was a huge moment in Chinese history, because not only did it see the rise of the Republic itself, but simultaneously from this, the rise of warlords all across the country. Instead of having a peaceful transition into a Republican government, what we instead saw was warlords effectively take power in different factions all across the country and begin to fight one another for territory power and influence. Again, another fascinating time period that I would love to do a video on. Of course, when you have all these warlords who are waging war on one another for power and influence, they need a way in order to be able to finance their wars in the first place. After all, wars are very, very expensive things. And so the way that these warlords paid for their wars in the first place was by using something called warlord bonds, or at least that's the name that they would get at a later point in time. Essentially, what these things were, were, I kid you not, a promissory note that was backed by the word of the warlord that they would totally, totally, absolutely pay back their goods, you know, once they had won the conflict and achieved uh, riches. The problem with these bonds was that they were essentially worthless. They were usually not backed by any kind of assets, any bank, literally anything that would have any kind of financial reality whatsoever. So they were useless paper bills that couldn't actually do anything. This is something that would only worsen China's debt crisis. And on top of that, in addition to all of these promissory notes, we would see the mass printing of paper money and from that mass inflation across the country. And that is something that would only continue to be a problem all the way through the 1940s and then subsequently the Chinese Civil War which is something that we know the result of today because the current party that is in charge of China is the same one that won all the way back then. On October 1st, 1949, the People's Republic
Republic of China would be proclaimed under the leadership of Chinese communist leader Mao Zedong. Now, interestingly enough, what the new communist government found is that the economic issues were not suddenly magically fixed when they were in charge. Just because the bullets stopped flying and no one was at war did not mean that everything was going to magically fix itself. The debt from the previous government did not simply just go away, and so the CCP now had to do something very significant in order to be able to address it. The first thing that they were going to do was focus on the nationalization of key industries that they could actually take charge of, and the second thing was just outright not paying back a bunch of the foreign debt, which we'll get into in a bit here, but first nationalization. The first industries to go and be nationalized were those like banking, transportation, and heavy manufacturing, the things that would be necessary for a burgeoning state to actually go and industrialize itself. Nationalization was seen as a means by which one was going to be able to consolidate resources and make sure that the state had more direct control over the economy without the interference or influence of foreign powers. You couldn't exactly do much when someone could potentially turn off your rail system at any given time from a foreign country. Then, of course, we have the very bold move of just not paying back the previous government's debt. The refusal to pay back this debt was based on the idea that the previous debt was the result of unequal treaties as well as foreign exploitation, and that was not something that the communist government was going to be able to abide. This, of course, along with nationalization of foreign-owned industries, is not exactly something that would go over well with foreign powers, and that is something that would result in China being isolated diplomatically for several decades. But simultaneously, because of this isolation, this is something that would necessitate and create China's economic philosophy of self-sufficiency, of being able to do everything itself and everything being done in China, which at first doesn't exactly go over well. The time period going into immediately after this, into the 1950s, would see one of the biggest human disasters of the 20th century. The Great Leap Forward was Mao Zedong's attempt to rapidly industrialize China's peasant economy, but this is something that would massively fail. And as a result of that, anywhere between 10 to 40 million people would die between 1959 and 1961, the most costly famine in human history. This was, of course, followed by the economic disruption of the Cultural Revolution in the 1960s, which was a campaign that Mao had launched to try and rid the Communist Party of his rivals, but would end up destroying a lot of the country's social fabric. Yet, this is not something that would fully destroy China, and after Mao's death in 1976, the reforms that were spearheaded by Deng Xiaoping would help to reshape the economy and bring it out of poverty. Peasants, as an example, during this time period were actually granted the right to own their own plots of land in comparison to being forced onto communal farms where everyone was starving, thus easing food shortages. The door would be reopened to foreign investment as the United States and China would reestablish diplomatic ties in 1979, and eager to take advantage of cheap labor and low costs of land, money would pour in from outside sources into China. In the years that would follow and going through the 1990s, China would begin to clock massive growth rates, and joining the World Trade Organization in 2001 would give it another massive jolt. Trade barriers and tariffs with other countries were lowered, and soon Chinese goods were everywhere. Effectively, China became the workshop of the world. And people need to understand just the sheer amount of money that we are talking about here and how drastic of an increase this was. Back in the year 1978, exports were around $10 billion. By the year 1985, this had more than doubled to $25 billion. But then under two decades later, the exports that were coming out of China were valued at $4.3 trillion. This is something that at that time period would make China the world's largest trading nation in goods. Now, everything that I've been talking about here going into this point doesn't exactly answer the question of A, how China got wrapped up in debt in the first place, and B, why the economy is a lie. And the answer to that, my friends, 
is infrastructure. Over the past several decades, but particularly after the 2008 financial crisis, infrastructure development became one of the key cornerstones of the Chinese economic strategy. Massive investments in infrastructure projects are not only things that would go and stimulate the economy, but simultaneously, infrastructure projects would help project Chinese influence overseas through things such as the Belt and Road Initiative. Now, that is something that likely deserves its own video as well, in addition to everything else that I've already mentioned over the course of this video, but we are going to tackle that a little bit more later. Anyway, China's willingness to attract foreign direct investment by opening up its market is something that would allow for massive amounts of economic development within the country. The more investment that came in, the more China's output grew. Thus, from that growth, more investment would come in, trying to seek the same thing. This relationship would carry forward for many years, but during all of this, the debt crisis that was mounting in the background is never something that actually just went away. It only slowed down as China's economy was growing. But then all of a sudden, things just became too big to manage, it seems. Because, my friends, that is truly where the lie of the Chinese economy comes in. It is all wrapped up in showy projects and unimaginable levels of debt. These levels of debt have in turn been caused by massive increases in state investment, in the real estate market bubble, and also massive projects like the Belt and Road Initiative. And so how does all of this tie into the Chinese GDP and its lie? Well, allow me to explain, because it's really important to understand just how GDP functions within China. By definition, GDP, or gross domestic product, measures the monetary value of final goods and services. That is, those that are bought by the final user, produced in a country in a given period of time, say whether over the quarter or over a year, and it counts all of the output that is generated within the border of a country. GDP is composed of goods and services that are produced for sale in the market, and it also includes some non-market production, things such as defense or education services, things that are provided by the government. An alternative concept to this is gross national product, or GNP, and that counts all the output of the residents of a country. So as an example, if we were looking at this, a German-owned company has a factory in the United States, the output of the factory would be included in the U.S. GDP, but because it is a German factory, it would also be included in Germany's GNP. For most of the world, the GDP growth rate is simply something that is measuring the change in economic activity from the previous year. But in China, that is not enough. It is not enough that the GDP is simply measured and monitored. No, the GDP at the end of the year is a goal. It is a finish line. It is something that has to be achieved. The higher, the better. And to that end, the central government will set ambitious GDP targets for all of the provinces within the country at the beginning of the year. And typically, the Chinese Communist Party will set these targets so high that in a standard economy, one would normally think that it's impossible. Yet somehow, magically, in the miracle economy that is China, not only are these goals typically met, but in many cases, they are exceeded. Hey everyone, Sakuya here, and before we get back to the show, I would just like to thank today's sponsor, eBay Motors. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential, and then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you can make sure that your ride stays running smoothly. Brake kits, LED headlights, exhaust kits, turbochargers, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. 
Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. So the question really comes is like, how do these governments, how do all these local governments manage to meet growth targets without borrowing massive amounts of money when that is not something that is allowed in order to be able to invest in their own economies? Well, in some cases, the answer is they just lie about it. And so a number of people are probably rightfully going to wonder why. Why would they go and do that? Why would you lie about your numbers to the central government? Isn't that something that you would get in trouble for? And also, how do we know in the first place that local governments are lying about economic data? Well, the answer, my friends, is rewards. Or if not a reward, then at least keeping your job in the first place. You see, officials who meet targets are rewarded with more positions and investment from the central government, while those that fail to achieve goals will receive less, and may even be possibly investigated for corruption or other issues in order to have them replaced with someone who is either more competent or loyal. And so here's the problem. What this often leads to is overinflated reports of economic activity in order to make things seem like they are better than they actually are. Of course, one is going to wonder how exactly all this is tracked, and who is keeping an eye on these places, and the answer is the central government, which sort of goes along with the lies, at least to a degree. China's National Bureau of Statistics, or the NBS, fully acknowledges that local reports tend to be overstated. However, they don't really have the power to be able to control the actions of local governments. Instead, what they do is just use local government's data, but then go and adjust these numbers, things that will help them arrive at the official number for Chinese national GDP after reducing perhaps some of these overzealous numbers that are likely not true. If one is then wondering how severe these adjustments are, on average, they amounted to approximately 5% of China's GDP since the mid-2000s. A 2009 study would actually then discover that the corrections that were made by the National Bureau of Statistics to local government data were relatively accurate give or take a few tenths of a percentage point, at least until the year 2008. Now, what happened in the year 2008, you may ask? Well, that would be the global financial crisis. What's really interesting to note about all this is that the corrections after the 2008 financial crisis just seemed to be too small. And over time, after the Great Recession, when every single other country in the world was struggling, the Chinese Communist Party was not. Instead, what seems to have happened is that it decided to go along with its local government's lies and make things look better than they actually were. For anyone who is wondering why exactly the government would do this in the first place, well, there are likely two reasons. The first is that it would support the government by making it look stronger and better to the people that it's ruling. But also, at the same time, this would have the effect of actually increasing foreign investment. As while the rest of the world would seem to be struggling, China would appear to not be struggling as much, thus making it a safer bet for investors to actually invest in, which in turn would actually help the economy. And thus it was that every year after 2009, the gap between the reported numbers and the real numbers would only continue to grow. Remember what we said at the beginning of this video. By one economic study, China has been overreporting its growth rate on an average of 1.7 percentage points every year. And over the course of a decade, this cumulative growth rate lie would only grow larger. But outright lying is not the only way that one is able to inflate their GDP numbers. Interestingly enough, there is a more legitimate way to do this, even if the method itself is extremely unsustainable. Investment. Remember how I said earlier that local governments within Chinese provinces were not necessarily able to borrow massive amounts of money? Well, one of the things that they could do as a kind of workaround is something called a local government financing vehicle, aka a 
LGFV. There is a lot of jargon that could explain exactly what these things are, but essentially LGFVs are special entities specifically designed to facilitate off-the-books borrowing of massive amounts of money. It's going to sound like a bit of an odd thing, but it does actually make sense, so hear me out. This approach is something that would emerge in the 1990s as local governments would try to bypass borrowing restrictions that were imposed by the CCP. Naturally, the government did not want its local provinces to borrow massive amounts of money themselves, as that in turn could potentially call for a need to have them bailed out if anything went wrong. Over time, these entities became the go-to source for local governments to raise funds, resulting in loans through LGFVs, counting for almost 50% of China's GDP. And remember, we're talking about everything that is being done specifically through loans. That is debt. And what makes this debt so particularly challenging is that it's very hidden. This is something that is, again, off the books, and the true extent of the problem is largely unknown until it's too late. So then, you may be asking the question, how exactly does an LGFV even work? How would that affect the local economy? And what does that do for one's GDP? How does all that factor in? Well, what typically happens is that an LGFV will get some sort of land within a province for free from the local government. After it is in their possession, they either lease the land to developers first, who want to construct something on it, or more often than not, they will use it as a guarantee for a loan in order to borrow money from the banks. This here is the big part. After they have the loan, they then use the borrowed money to invest in expensive infrastructure projects. Now, not all these are necessarily mega projects, which is something that we could definitely do a video on as China has a very strong history with all these, some good, some bad. The majority of these involve things like building new roads, rail networks, shipping hubs, etc. And so the more money, the more money that gets invested into one of these projects and the bigger it is, the more that that figure is then added to the GDP of a local province. What this effectively does is it allows these investments to be used in order to achieve the GDP growth rates that are set by the central government, which sounds pretty legit, right? After all, something is actually being built here that theoretically should be something that supports the local economy. But there's a little bit of a problem, though. Even though building something does sound like a good idea, it's important to note that not all infrastructure projects are actually a good thing or a wise investment in the first place. Building a road to nowhere is still a road to nowhere. People will not be using it to transport goods. A rail network to far-flung provinces with smaller populations that don't actually commute very much may connect the country, yes, but there's not enough people actually paying to use the service in the first place to ever make it profitable. A port is great if it actually has goods to ship. In many cases, these projects in China are not actually being built because there is a demand. They are built specifically in order to inflate GDP and hoping that they will be used enough in order to recoup the debt needed to build them in the first place, something that does not generally happen. International Monetary Fund data reveals that China's local government debt has nearly doubled in just five years to approximately $5 trillion. This amount does not even include LGFVs, though, which may potentially account for another $10 trillion or more. And unfortunately for the Chinese Communist Party, that isn't the only problem that they have. Perhaps the greatest bubble that is being built here, because of course we're talking about everything that is being built within China, is the real estate market. All right, now I understand that was a bad pun, but hear me out on this. Whether or not the Chinese real estate market is something that has already crashed is something that is going to depend upon your opinion. Some people believe that it already has crashed, while others still believe that it is in decline and has not fully popped yet. Still, the reality of the situation is that the Chinese real estate market is by itself one of the largest factors within China's GDP, and it is in some serious trouble. The price of housing has overall been falling for over a year, which on paper, for a lot of you listening to this in the first place, may sound like that is something that is good for affordability. And yes, that kind of is. 
But also at the same time, it is terrible for investors and how things actually work within the Chinese real estate market. And unfortunately for these investors, that is a good percentage of the Chinese population. Many developers are facing severe financial difficulties, teetering oftentimes on the edge of bankruptcy with houses that were prepaid for that are not actually being completed in the first place. But the bigger issue that is being faced here is actually the availability of houses themselves, of which there are simply way too many. In late 2023, data from the National Bureau of Statistics indicated that a staggering 7 billion square feet of unsold homes existed in China. The current number of empty houses within China is enough for 3 billion people. That is more than double China's current population of 1.4 billion people. So this is something that makes you then wonder, why would China build so many houses even if there were no buyers? The answer to that is money as well as culture. To understand the Chinese obsession with real estate, we have to first understand that in their culture and for many cultures around the world, for centuries, owning land has been something that is considered a symbol of social status. It is also something that has provided stability to many people all over the world. Chinese families would often view real estate as a means by which one is able to pass down their wealth to their descendants versus simply just doing something for yourself. This is such a big factor within the Chinese economy that real estate accounts for 29% of the GDP and around 70% of all Chinese people have their wealth invested not in stocks, but rather in a property. And this becomes a bit of a problem when housing prices continue to fall and one's wealth and life savings are invested into that property and they start to disappear rather than grow. Until recent years, this hadn't really been a problem as the rapidly expanding middle class throughout China would cause demand for housing to skyrocket over the years. This surge in demand would push real estate prices even higher and the Chinese government would help push things along by lowering tax rates and interest rates in order to be able to help people invest in properties. They specifically would encourage people to invest in property, thus helping China grow faster. But then the crash came. Somewhere between 2020 and 2022, China's property market would witness a dramatic downturn. All of these massive sprawling apartment complexes would end up sitting empty, like a creepy scene out of Silent Hill. They were veritable ghost towns. Residents would then organize mortgage boycotts where they outright refused to pay for incomplete homes that they were living in, and a global pandemic would only worsen the situation. The focal point for this crisis was Evergrande, which was China's second largest developer. Now, I could probably do an entire video on the housing crisis in the first place, but to give you an idea of just how severe this was, the founder of Evergrande was once the second richest person in Asia. But since 2017, he lost over 90% of his personal fortune, and that is just the rich guy on top. For the average home buyer, for the people who are actually going in and purchasing these homes in the first place, many of them would end up being trapped in half-finished properties that were already paid for when Evergrande just simply ran out of money and stopped building them. Some would even be forced to move out of these in desperation, but it's not something that would end up actually helping them, because many of these people would end up struggling to pay both mortgages for their half-finished homes and simultaneously having to pay rent for the apartments that they actually live in. But how does all this happen? How does China's housing market go from boom to bust just that quickly? Well, the issue is that China has a very unique house purchasing system in comparison to many Western countries. I'm sure that for many of you who are watching this, that even if you do not own a home directly, you are at least familiar that the system of home buying involves the payment of a down payment and a monthly mortgage payment to a bank after a home has been built, not the full amount up front. But in China, the full cost is required up front through a combination of down payments as well as bank loans before one even has the house in the first place. Hell, 
people. This is oftentimes years before the house even begins to be built in the first place. And that puts Chinese buyers at unusually high levels of risk. See, the money that is paid for the house goes directly into the developer's bank account which instead of being used to build the house first, like it is supposed to, oftentimes this ends up being used to lease more land in order to build more things and thus make more money in an ever repeating cycle. Lack of funds for proper good building materials is then what leads to the infamous rotten tail buildings of China that, again, from what I've already talked about, I should do a video on. But to give you an idea of what it is that I'm talking about, imagine, if you will, a child who with the slightest amount of force is capable of snapping a safety railing in half because it was that cheaply made. You can only imagine how dangerous that would be on a balcony, and now imagine hundreds of thousands of these homes, with many not even being completed in the first place, mere shells with no electricity or running water. And that, my friends, is only talking about the local level. That is talking about housing. The last part is the mega. Chinese President Xi Jinping used to brag about the Beijing Belt and Road Initiative that it was the project of the century, something that would alter the global balance of power and influence. But now, in recent years, he has had to choose more humble language, speaking of it in terms of reform and retrenchment. China's Belt and Road Initiative seems to have fallen very short of its original goals, as well as the fears that it once widely engendered in the West. For those of you who have not exactly been looking into it, China's BRI was always something that was like something straight out of the mafia. Beijing would approach poorer countries in Asia, Africa, Latin America, the Middle East, etc., and they would offer loans for important infrastructure projects. Things like ports, rail links, dams, roads, things like that. State-owned Chinese banks would then arrange the financing, and Chinese contractors would then execute the projects and manage them after they were completed. If the host country failed to pay, the projects would then come under Chinese ownership. Either way, Beijing would gain influence and considerable leverage over the nations that allowed themselves to become involved. Since Xi first rose to the presidency, China has made over $1 trillion in these loans in some 150 countries, making the country the world's largest official creditor. The problem with things within the Belt and Road Initiative is that it carries many of the same problems that occur within infrastructure projects in China, as we already talked about for inflating the GDP. Just because you are building something does not mean that it is a good investment. The problem for the start of many of these projects is that many of them were chosen for political and diplomatic reasons, not necessarily for economic reasons. A lot of these efforts were always commercially dubious, and now it's clear that many of them are not going to be able to earn enough in order to support the loans that built them in the first place. In Sri Lanka, as an example, even before the COVID-19 pandemic shut down trade, the BRI-built port that is built there lacked the traffic to actually meet the terms of the loan. That loan went bad, even if the Chinese state-owned banks involved were not ready for years afterwards to make any kind of declaration. Similar things are occurring all across the entire BRI. Pakistan, who is one of the largest BRI participants, has fallen so short of its obligations that it was forced to turn to the International Monetary Fund for relief. Economists at the World Bank now estimate that some 60% of all Belt and Road Initiative loans involve countries that are in severe financial distress, and the loans in Africa look particularly bad. Even before any recent defaults or anything like that, Chinese bankers had warned about the financial and economic viability of a number of these BRI projects. Some of these bankers were so concerned about being held accountable that they insisted that Beijing go and extend several loans. And for a long time, Beijing just refused to acknowledge the financial troubles at all. Officials put bankers under pressure to avoid any reference to bad or failed loans, and instead, the banks were encouraged to keep their borrowers afloat by extending the maturity of the loans what in banking jargon essentially means extend and pretend. 
In other words, extend the loan and pretend that nothing is wrong. The thing about these projects, bad investments that many of them were, is that because they specifically used Chinese companies in order to create them, that is something that in turn would inflate the GDP of China. And afterwards, through management of the facilities in the first place, is something that would still support the GNP of China. But really, as an aftermath of bad loans, GDP growth doesn't really mean anything when it is merely an artificial inflation of a country's capabilities. And so thus it is that between outright lies from officials, infrastructure projects to nowhere within the Chinese state, and massive mega projects, all of which are fueled by massive amounts of loans, that the economy of China is a bit of a lie. Everyone, thank you very much for watching. This has been Sakui with the History of Everything podcast YouTube channel. Thank you very much for joining me here today. I ask that you like, comment, subscribe, as all that really does help my videos here in the algorithm. And if you could let me know down in the comment section below what kind of videos you would like to see next, then by all means, do let me know, and I will look for that for the next video idea. Thank you all very much, and I hope you have a good rest of your day.